Welcome to Sitka Tells Tales, a live storytelling event based in Sitka, Alaska. Tonight's event was broadcasted live on KCAW on October 19th, 2021, and was presented in collaboration with the Sitka Whale Fest and the Sitka Sound Science Center. Tonight's theme is Being in the Question, stories of curiosity in science, and your host is Alan Frankenstein. Welcome to Sitka Tells Tales. Tonight's theme is Being in the Question, stories of science and curiosity. We're once again on Zoom, where the tellers are gathered to share true stories told live. We don't share the video, but we instead encourage you to be get cozy, to listen, and create your own images. This evening is a new collaboration for Sitka Tales Tales with the Sitka Whale Fest and the Sitka Sound Science Center, and one we hope will continue. So let's hear from Jay Stilwell with the Sitka Whale Fest. Thanks, Ellen. Sitka Whale Fest is excited to be part of tonight's program in collaborating with Art Change and Raven Radio. We look forward to tonight's show. We hope the listening audience will also join us November 4th through the 7th for the 25th Sitka Whale Fest. Thanks, Jay. Okay, it's time to share six true stories told live on air. We'll be hearing stories of questions and learning to ask new questions, tales that will involve abalone, whales, salmon, and the seas. Our tellers for this episode are Stacy Golden, Taylor White, Ron Heights, Jason Smith, Molly Greer, and Steve Johnson. Thanks to them for stepping up to provide a glimpse into the world of people who observe, do research, and try to understand why things happen, reminding us all of the connections in the natural and physical world. Our first storyteller is Stacy Golden. Stacy came to Sitka in 1994 to attend Sheldon Jackson College. She earned a degree in marine biology before getting a master's in teaching from UAS. Stacy is currently in her 19th year with the Sitka School District, teaching life science, marine biology, and field science. Welcome, Stacy. So I'll never forget that morning. It was like a dream. I woke up, I jumped out of my bunk, threw on my extra tufts, and ran out to the back deck. And there it was, this place I'd heard so much about, um, but couldn't really visualize until I was actually standing there. The sun hadn't fully risen yet, and so the sky was full of dark blues and navies and some blacks within, but I could see it. There in the distance was a volcano. It was a little one, about three to 400 feet tall, but around it, around the perimeter of the island on which the volcano sat, were the northern fur seals. I'd always dreamed of seeing a northern fur seal, but I never thought that I would see them by the hundreds. Even from the distance I was at, I could make out the harems. I could see the males surrounded by all of their females. I could see the pups laying in with between the males and females on the beach. I could see some frolicking in the waves and going to and from the island. But the most amazing thing was the sound. They were so loud and so gregarious for so early in the morning. I stood there for several minutes, probably 10 or 15 minutes. Um, it just took my breath away and I just kind of soaked it all in. But quickly, I realized I was freezing cold um, because I had run out of my room in just my extra tufts and my pajamas. And even though it was June in the middle of the Gulf of Alaska, it's still quite cold. 
about an hour later, I was back on the back deck, this time putting on my Mustang suit and getting on board a Zodiac. We left the ship and headed towards the shoreline, and I became a little anxious because all of a sudden I realized I had to get through these fur seals to navigate up onto the main part of the island, and they were a little menacing up there. Luckily, the girl driving the boat was a lot smarter than I was, and so she put us on the shoreline um, between two sub-adult males. They were males that were old enough to want to defend their territory, but not old enough that the females wanted to mate with them. So the five of us got off the Zodiac and she slowly backed away. We didn't take a few steps before both of the males charged us from both sides. Luckily, they only came about 10, 12 yards before they stopped and turned around. Um, it could be because the five of us huddled together and were waving shovels in the air because I was with geologists and they always carry shovels. And um, we started yelling and screaming at them. So we continued to walk up the beach. And as we got away from the fur seals, it was evident they no longer cared for us. But only then did I realize I'd been so enthralled with the fur seals that I was completely oblivious to the birds. Thousands and thousands of birds were swarming all above us, flying in the sky, landing on the volcano, walking on the ground in front of me, um, climbing on the big rocks, towers that were coming out of the island. It was amazing, so, um, several different species, murs and puffins. Um, and so their symphony was quite the backdrop to the first seals, which I could still hear behind me. So I started to kind of walk up the island and the ground was covered in gall nests. Now, the odd thing was I'd seen gall nests on other islands and they were made from plants and roots and um, natural materials. And here they were also made from natural materials, but there were no plants on the island. So the only thing they had to be able to use was kelp. So they were nests made of kelp and rockweed and um, different kinds of seaweeds. As I continued to walk through them, my eyes adjust to the chicks. They were really camouflaged. And the chicks would be huddled in groups of twos or threes. Um, sometimes they'd be huddled up next to an egg that had not yet hatched. And then several of them would be huddled next to the rocks. And as I sat there watching them, I realized my face was freezing. It was quite windy. Um, but my feet were hot and my feet are never hot. And then I made the connection and I knelt down to the ground and the ground was hot. There was still so much geothermal activity going on in this island that it was radiating out a huge amount of heat and the chicks would huddle next to the rocks and lay on the ground to keep them warm. So as I continued to move forward, um, about another hundred yards or so, I got hit by another um, sense and that was through my nose. The smell of sulfur boiling and thermal pools just filled on my face and it was all I could smell. And so off to the left, there was probably a football sized field area that was just full of all of these thermal pools. And so I navigated a little ways into them and then I backed off because I no longer trusted the ground that was under my feet. And as I stood there thinking about the animals that were there and this ground and the fact that the land I was on hadn't existed two years before. See, there'd been a massive volcanic eruption that had doubled the size of the island. And at that moment, it was kind of silly. And I look back on it now and I laugh, as especially as a science teacher. But I made this analogy of baby Earth. It was so funny because there was all these bubbling thermal pools and there were all these animals fighting to survive and there was no plant life there. Um, but there was just simply um, this life that was fighting to survive. And then it hit me. This is it. This is why I was here. Because see, in all honesty, at this point, I kind of become stagnant as a teacher. I was kind of at a crossroads in my career and I really didn't enjoy my job anymore. That's all it was, was a job. 
But in this moment, my sense of curiosity came right back to me like a tidal wave. I was so excited and I had a million questions. And I realized this is why I'm a teacher. This is why I do it. I love it. And I love that moment when a kid makes a connection and their life is curious. And so for each of you that are listening tonight, I thank you. And I hope that as you listen to us go through the evening, you find a sense of curiosity and are inspired to learn something new about the world of science. Thank you, Stacy. And as I listen to your story, I'm grinning from ear to ear. And I just want to tell everyone, you're tuned to Sitka Tells Tales here live on KCAW. Our next storyteller is Taylor White. Taylor is a born and raised Sitkin working on her graduate studies at UC Santa Cruz. Following undergrad, Taylor managed the aquarium at the Sitka Sound Science Center, where during an annual intertidal monitoring survey, she met her graduate advisor. Currently, she can be found in or around the ocean here in Southeast Alaska, exploring questions on all things influencing local pinto abalone populations, or else she can be found at her computer trying to put words to it all. Please welcome Taylor. This is my story about a moment of how did I get here? And uh, perhaps we've all had these moments, maybe a few too many of them. I've certainly had a few, Um, but just this particular moment uh, was where I very much explored uh, my approach to science and research and what was driving a lot of my curiosity uh, in this very unusual situation. And that situation, well, to start from the beginning, was gonads. Um, And just fair warning, I do talk about gonads quite a bit, uh, generally outside of this talk, but also just because I spend quite a few hours contemplating abalone gonads. And uh, these surveys that I've been doing over the summers involve abalone gonad surveys. And for those of you who don't know what abalone are, they're a gorgeous single-shelled mollusk with a beautiful like knacker, mother of pearl inside and maybe you eat them, maybe you wear them. Um, But for those of you who don't know what abalone gonad surveys are, I mean, probably most of you know. So for those of you who don't, um, you'll just have to like, those of you who know will have to kind of hang out um, because it's a complex process. So gonad surveys basically involve a dive, so, so scuba dive, with a dive buddy who has pretty much no idea what they've signed up for. And um, during this dive, we go in search of abalone of a particular size. And once we find those abalone, we will either try and pluck them really quickly off of the rock. And that's before they sort of clench down to the rock to protect themselves from gonad surveys or other such things. Um, And if that doesn't work, then of course we have um, ethanol, in a camelback strapped to our chests uh, that will then just squirt on them if they don't respond to that, um, which basically is like an irritant. It's not very nice, but it doesn't hurt them as much as say scraping them as they are able to bleed out with really large cuts. So um, (laughs) ethanol, or maybe we'll be carrying around 
shells filled with little baby sunflower stars because we don't want to hurt the sunflower stars. There are very few of them anymore. And so we put them in little shells and we'll run around to abalone and open up the shell. And hopefully those abalone will have some sort of chemical response to their predator being present in this cute little shell um, and move. And then we can grab them. Um, so once we've potentially grabbed the right sized abalone off of rocks, we'll set them down onto the ocean floor and wait for them to turnover. And once they move their foot to sort of right themselves up, grab them and basically pull their foot back to look for gonads, um, which is basically the whole survey. But what if we can't tell if it's a male or a female, right? So that's the main goal here. Is it a male? Is it a female? Is it fecund? Um, is it a male that looks like a female because it just spawned? So we need hypodermic needles, obviously. So we also have hypodermic needles on hand with our camelbacks full of ethanol and all of our dive gear. And we're sitting there trying to get a sample of this gonad. And I'm just thinking to myself, how did I get here? <laughs> like how and why? And perhaps you came to that conclusion before I did in this moment, um, but I was like, this was my idea. I came up with this, like, right? So like, yeah, like this was my idea. I had the idea to, that this sort of spawned from following all of these little abalone eggs in the water in Prince of Wales, an area that has a lot of predators for abalone. Um, and I was following these eggs to a very small abalone, an abalone that was like not predictably mature. So smaller than I would expect for maturity. Um, and so from that observation, I sort of wanted to explore this predator prey interaction. I knew predators prefer more efficient large prey. And so perhaps predators were removing large prey and those prey like abalone were evolving to become mature at smaller sizes, which is why I saw a small abalone spawning. Um, and yeah, so like maybe that was what was up. And so I wanted to sort of survey for that. And that's not really an original idea. Like I didn't fully come up with that idea. Uh, that's foraging theory. So foraging theory, predicting predator behaviors for eating larger sizes of abalone. Um, and that's based on a sort of energetic cost benefit analysis, right? So that's an economic strategy. Um, and that whole thing is explained by fisheries induced evolution. But I digress. Well, no, evolution is explained by Darwin. And um, anyway, I'm thinking of this while holding an abalone and a hypodermic needle. And I'm realizing what is like an original idea? Darwin was an explorer and I was always really jealous of explorers. You just got to go wherever and tell a story, right, of that place. Um, but that's based off of some of the stuff that they've learned and the lens that they've created when looking at a, a system, right? And so Darwin had this, the, he listened to economists who talked about the struggles to survive and the survival of the fittest and geologists that talked about change over long periods of time. And, um, so I just felt kind of like actually much more lucky to have not such a limited perspective of this written knowledge that was available to like explorers like Darwin. Um, his theory had holes. And um, that's because 
evolution is complex. So are abalone gonads and other things, but I'm just really lucky to have Darwin's theory and its holes, but also to sort of have built a different lens for this study, uh, to have been a student, a student of Stacy's, uh, growing up in Sitka, and also be able to be a student in a grad program and a science community and an instructor. So I've been learning from a lot of my students that I've been teaching. They've been helping me with like, how do you pack hypodermic needles in your scuba kit? Um, So things like that. And also, I'm so lucky to be just a member of the community with a really, really deep connected connection and understanding of this place. And lucky to have a more and more diverse and inclusive understanding with which to examine and explore our surroundings and to tell a more complex and inclusive and interesting story, not just about abalone gonads. Thanks for your story, Taylor. And again, your enthusiasm, you're taking us into worlds that are super complex and it's wonderful to journey with you. And I have no idea what you do with hyperdermic needles when you're scuba diving. But I want to thank you all for tuning into this presentation of Sitka Tells Tales. Our next teller is Ron Heinz. Uh, he's the research director at the Sitka Sound Science Center. He has been conducting research in Alaska since the early 1980s. Before working at the Science Center, he worked for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration aka NOAA, in Juneau, and did hatchery research, oil toxicology, and ecological research. His work has taken him from southeast Alaska to the Beaufort Sea. He lives in Juneau with his wife, Bonita, a dog, and a cat. Welcome, Ron. On the morning of March 24th, 1989, I got up as usual, got myself a cup of coffee, flipped on the radio, and there was a news story about how the Exxon Valdez had run aground and created an oil spill in Prince William Sound. Little I know how that oil was going to change my life and give me a view into how science is used and misused in the development of public policy. And that's because not only did I have a front row seat to all the science was done after the oil spill, but I was a participant. Now, for as long as I can remember, I wanted to be a research ecologist. And in 1989, I was just starting my career as a research scientist for NOAA uh, at the hatchery down on South Baranoff at Little Port Walter. And the work I was doing was not super exciting, really. I mean, it was not groundbreaking, but it was helpful to hatchery operators throughout the state. And I liked it. I was learning a lot about salmon and learning a lot about salmon culture. And also in 1989, the way we thought about oil spills was different. At that time, the conventional thinking was that oil spills caused a short-term acute effect. What that meant is animals would be injured because they would get coated with oil or they would inhale toxic fumes or maybe they would eat it. But the the waves and stuff would break up oil slicks and dissipate the oil and waves and tidal action and winter storms would clean the beaches and things would just clean themselves up and all those nasty things you saw with the animals would go away pretty quickly. Uh, and, And that seemed to be the case in Prince William Sound in 1990 when people looked at it, there wasn't a lot of oil on the beaches anymore and there weren't any oil slicks. But ADF and G biologists that were working up there had noticed that in the pink salmon streams that were 
cut through oil beaches, uh, that the mortality rates in those streams for the pink salmon eggs was a lot higher than it was in the streams on the clean beaches. So my role in the Exxon Valdez oil spill was to figure out what was going on there. So my colleagues and I developed a, an experimental system where we created incubators and we put rocks in the incubators and put oil on the rocks. And then we seeded the incubator, different amounts of oil in different incubators, and then seeded the incubators with pink salmon eggs and watched what happened. We did this multiple times, and that means multiple years because it took, takes a year to do one of these experiments. And we always saw the same result. And what we saw was that the pink salmon in the oiled incubators died at a high rate. And not only did the, the and then the ones that didn't die, there were a lot of birth defects among those. And the ones that didn't die and didn't have birth defects, when we released them out into the ocean, they didn't come back at the same rate as the ones that came out of the clean incubators. And this was even happening in incubators where there was so little oil on the rocks that you couldn't even see it when you looked at the rocks. And then we also found that the compounds that were causing these effects, the chemicals, were environmentally persistent. They didn't wash away very quickly. And part, and that was important because when you went to Prince William Sound and you looked at these clean beaches and you dug holes in them, you would find that there was oil buried under the surface in Prince William Sound. In fact, there's still oil there in some of those beaches today. And so we put this information together and created a new theory of the effects of oil spills on ecosystems and ecological processes that included these long-term effects on the animals that included the, uh, um, the, these persistent compounds and that these things were occurring at really low, these effects were occurring at very low concentrations, even below the state water quality standards. So that of course did not make Exxon very happy, Exxon being the spiller, and uh, that was gonna have a big impact on their ability to do business. So what Exxon did is they decided to confuse the public debate. And they did this by developing their own research program, which consisted of repeating the experiments that the government was doing. So they repeated my experiments, they repeated experiments that the sea otter people did and the harrow conduct people did, and the people that were studying the fate of oil did. And they repeated those experiments and lo and behold, every time they repeated one of our experiments, they got the opposite result, no effect of oil. And uh, so that made it very difficult for the public because when you put these experiments side by side, surface, they look very similar, but there were opposite results. So how could that be? Well, those of us who are deeply involved in this, we could see the differences, the subtle differences in the experiments, the differences in experimental design, the number of replicates they used, the number of samples they ultimately collected. And so even for technical people who weren't uh, intimately involved, it was hard to tease apart these differences between the studies. And this whole debate was not very friendly. So when I would go to meetings to give a talk about my results, a whole row of Exxon scientists would sit in the front row in front of me. One of them would whip out a, a video camera and video my presentation. And then I knew they were gonna ask very pointed and specific questions intended to discredit me because they had access to all my laboratory notes through the Freedom of Information Act. And so they would write reports and in the reports, they would say that they would identify me specifically and say my work was inconsistent and should not be used in developing government policy. For me, and this was the case for all the people that were doing work with the sea otters and harrow conducts and everybody else. So, but for me, relief finally 
came about 25 years after oil spill. <clears throat> I was invited to a meeting on uh, Arctic oil spills in Copenhagen, and I had the opening uh, presentation. And when it was introduced, it was identified as the state of the art of knowledge about the impacts of oil in Arctic habitats. And in that talk, I was able to point out that the work I did in the, in the 1990s had been replicated in more than 20 other fish species around the world. And that our understanding of how these impacts were occurring was so detailed, we understand it on a molecular level now. So I bring this whole story up because there's a lot of misinformation and, and obfuscation about science in the news today. And um, that seems to be the case when science is being asked to inform public policy. And you can think about the tobacco industry and government scientists. You can think about COVID scientists and their objections to vaccines. It's just kind of the way it is. And that could be really depressing, but I'm really optimistic about it because I know that out there, there are thousands of scientists who are just like me, who grew up wanting to be a scientist and just wanting to learn stuff, whose work will ultimately become very important. So you can think about those people that 10, 15, 20 years ago started messing around with mRNA. They wanted to know what its structure was and how it worked and, and how, how we might be able to use it. And they had no concept how important that work would be and how much it would be in the spotlight today. And these, these legions of scientists that are working away in labs, in government labs and academic labs all over the country, they're working to protect us from future hazards. Thanks, Ron. We're at the halfway point of this live broadcast. We've heard three stories and we have three remaining. Next is Jason Smith. Jason grew up on the San Andreas Fault in California and received a degree in geology from Carleton College. She lives in Sitka now, working as the geoscience coordinator at the Sitka Sound Science Center. She loves swimming in kelp forests and getting on the radio waves for KCAW every other Thursday at 10 p.m. So the crux of my story is when I'm laying on the ground in the East Bay of San Francisco, California, and I'm waiting for an explosion to go off under the ground. Um, and when the explosion goes off, a wave will travel through the earth and I'll feel it with my arms and legs extended on the ground through my heels and all the way through my, past my head. Um, and this is all in the name of science. Uh, so I'm gonna walk you through this story uh, really driven by four questions. And the first question is, is there a map store here? <laughs> so when I was in high school, um, I, in order to graduate, needed to either take on an elective class or I needed to get an internship. And so of course I chose the internship because it meant I wouldn't have to go to class. Um, but of the internship opportunities, none of them were really catching my eye. There was one, I remember you could work at a local bakery, which sounded great, but not quite for me. There was also a position at the coroner's office, also not for me. Um, and so I sat down with the internship coordinator um, and she said, what are you interested in? Tell me about yourself. And I said, well, I think I like science and I think I'd like to be outside. Um, and she thought for a moment and then she said, oh, um, I think there's a map store down the road where my husband goes to get maps before we go on backpacking trips. 
maybe you should print out your resume, uh, go to this map store and ask if they could offer you an internship. So I do exactly that. I print out my resume, which pretty much only has my experience working as a hostess at a restaurant and some volunteer opportunities. Um, and I go to the address where this so-called map store is. Um, and it is the US <laughs> Geological Survey, a federal office for people to do science. Um, and I'm shocked uh, and nervous. And I walk right in with my resume. Um, there's lots of maps everywhere, all over the walls and scientific posters. And there's a picture of the president of the United States. Um, and I'm wandering around these halls looking for a map store, which they do have, turns out. Um, but before I get to it, I bump into someone in the hall and I say my second question here, which is, could you use an intern? Uh, and she says, I'm an intern actually, um, but I could introduce you to my advisor. Um, and she does. And we sit down and talk. Um, and the advisor says, oh, um, my summer intern just left. I have an opening, you can have it. Um, and I begin my stint at the US Geological Survey um, where I'm at the uh, Earthquake Science Center. Um, and so my new advisor does all this cool computer, computer modeling um, and I get to interview scientists and I kind of have no idea what's going on, but every once in a while when his colleagues are doing field work, he sends me out with them. And so that's how I end up laying on the ground, waiting for a wave of an explosion to feel the wave go through my body um, because I got to tromp around the hills um, of Hayward and the East Bay. Um, and I got to deploy all these seismic instruments with this team of scientists um, and see and experience field work and what seismic surveys look like. Um, and they told us to come back in the middle of the night the next day so that we could be part of the sourcing, which is basically the explosions for these seismic surveys. Um, and so I think it was the moment when I was laying on the ground thinking, what am I doing here? Uh, when I was like just so struck um, and filled with kind of all these questions and this like deep curiosity I think was kind of like lit inside of me and like I was like I want to know like why <laughs> this wave that I can feel passing through my body and all the timestamps on these instruments we're laying out across the ground um, can tell us so much about the structure of the earth and about the hazards to the people who live here um, and it was that moment, I think, that set me off um, on the path that led me to Carleton to study geology um, and now here to Sitka, um, where I work uh, with landside researchers. Um, and just something kind of cool about that story, too, is that um, when I was, after the fact, studying tectonics at Carleton, um, my advisor from this internship at the US Geological Survey kept being referenced in the work that I was reading. And I had I could have had no concept of how cool um, and serendipitous it was for us to meet that day in the hallway 
before I got to the map store. But it was just a really cool kind of circling back. And yeah, that's that's my story. Thank you, Jason. Again, I hope this your energy, your curiosity is just hitting everyone who's listening because it certainly struck me. So again, thank you all for listening and tuning in to Sitka Tells Tales on KCAW. We have two more stories left to tell. The next is coming from Molly Greer. Molly is a recent transplant to Sitka. She spends most of her work days as a scientist trying to figure out how to make renewable energy from the ocean. Her funnest hobby is crafting knitted action figures of her favorite women scientists and knitting baby blankets. Welcome, Molly. So there I was in a parking lot trying to pick up a whale. I was late to this particular meeting because I had stopped at three Goodwills trying to find a cooler before finally succumbing to buying one at Walmart. You see, uh, I was actually only trying to pick up a whale head, a frozen dead baby whale head. And so like a two foot by one foot kind of standard 50 beer cooler was gonna be fine. But the problem was you weren't gonna wanna put beers in that cooler after like a, a rotting you know, whale head was slowly thawing. So it seemed a shame to buy it new. But anyways, uh, I'm in this parking lot scanning, trying to find the right person. I pick a guy on Carhartts and I say, are you the guy with the whale? Uh, he says yes, and I, I load it in my car and start driving about 10 miles per hour under the speed limit because, you know, even though I had a permit, I was just like terrified that I was going to get pulled over and they were going to be like, why do you have an endangered animal in your car? <sighs> so to back up a bit, I was in this particular situation because my lab group was trying to understand what would happen if machines that we put in the ocean to create renewable energy were to collide with a marine mammal. So as the tide rises, it pushes water from one place to another, creating a current. And that current can power tidal turbines, just like the wind powers wind turbines. And these tidal turbines move relatively slowly, like maybe eight rotations per minute. And so we thought that we could prove that um, if a tidal turbine were to collide with a killer whale, that it wouldn't injure it. And so now you might be thinking that my job was just to whack this frozen baby whale head with a tidal turbine blade. But in fact, we were going to take a more scientific approach. There was this machine uh, in this, at this remote biology lab where we could push and pull on the skin and blubber of a killer whale to understand how stretchy it was, how much we could compress it before it smushed. And all of that was going to give us one number that we could put into a computer model so that I could uh, model different speeds of tidal turbines, different types of tur tidal turbines hitting a whale. So it was with this mind, this very engineering mind, as a young uh, research engineer, that I arrived at this remote marine biology station in the San Juan Islands. And to describe this, this, this place, it's kind of magical. There's just a ton of biologists. There's like uh, housing where everybody stays. Um, and it's a little bit like cultish, you know? So I was starting to notice some weird things. Uh, the first thing I noticed was when I opened the freezer to try to find like a space to put my, my whale head in, 
the freezer is just chock full of of everything you can imagine. You know, we're talking like full skeletons of, of a million different fishes, whole sharks. I think that the guy who I was collaborating there, he like regularly had conversations like, hey, uh, you want to do like this experiment on manatee vertebrae? I, I actually have some in my freezer. You can borrow it. As if, as if like, like wanting to do an experiment on manatees was as common as like, you know, having a craving for, for chocolate ice cream. And he, he, he had some to share. Um, so anyways, this, the second thing I noticed uh, is that at about noon, everybody stopped for lunch. And at the, this first time I visited, I was a special guest at this marine lab. And so, so they were like, oh, oh, do you want to go out for lunch? Oh, yeah, let's take her to the place with the, with the hot chocolate. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, so they whisked me away to this, this uh, little cafe, all, all, you know, local food. Everyone knows each other. And I'm there with three biologists who are just like 100% in love with the natural world. And they, and they started asking me questions that, you know, I never thought to ask about, about killer whale skin and blubber. Like how might having stretchier skin uh, make the animal better at, at searching for prey or defending against predators? How might the stretchiness of the skin change over the life of the animal as it gets older? Does it get stretchier? Does it get stiffer? And these like kind of curiosity driven questions were like exciting to me, but I was kind of scared of like getting caught in a rabbit hole, you know, like we have these renewable energy machines to build and, and I didn't want to get uh, kind of like off track. Like at this point, when I looked out at the ocean, like all I saw was power. I saw every wave coming in, crashing, breaking, crushing structures in its path. I saw the tide rising and falling every day, twice a day, totally changing the landscape. In fact, I saw little of like the complicated ecosystem underneath. I saw little of the way that, you know, economic, uh, the economies of towns close to the ocean depend on the ocean. And I saw little of like the magic and wonder that we've heard in so many of these other stories today. I remember sitting out with my friend Raj and he was telling me about how manta rays eat. And I was like, come on, we have renewable energy machines to build. Um, but Raj thought we had a lot to learn from manta rays. You see, uh, when they open their mouth, they have this incredible like filter system and their mouth ricochets all these little particles uh, and filters the perfect size particles into their tummy. It's like a huge improvement over a traditional uh, filter, like a colander where particles can get stuck and, and clogged. So like when Raj looked out at the ocean, he saw like a thousand, if not a million animals, each with their own adaptations and wizardry. It was a lot bigger than just like one whale head and, and one number that I was trying to get. And so I uh, began changing into, into a biologist. Um, before I might've asked, you know, oh, oh, like, why are you studying kelp? Is it, is it, you know, for biofuels? And people would have been like, no, I just like, I'm interested in how kelp thrive. Um, and suddenly uh, I appreciated studying octopus for more than just, you know, artificial intelligence or like the next application. And along the way, you know, I realized that there were questions I might have missed by, by only looking at this, this problem in this very small way. I didn't know how likely it was that a whale uh, might avoid running into a tidal turbine, you know, because they're naturally able to avoid stationary objects. And I didn't know how the presence of the turbine might influence the fish that the whales eat. I hadn't thought about the bigger picture 
and the, the wider ecosystem. And so now you can tend, sometimes find me, like sometimes in a meeting or on a Zoom call, piping up. Uh, I think we're looking at the whale head here when uh, really we should be looking at the whole whale. Thanks. Thank you, Molly. That was wonderful. Again, grinning. These are like awesome stories and so excited that this presentation of Sitka Tales Tales is with scientists and such curious and enthusiastic people. Um, and so now we're on our last story for the night and it's from Steve Johnson. Steve is a well-known storyteller from Sitka when not working on cultural projects. He is, a com he is commercial fishing. Johnson also hunts and traps for food and furs. He is recognized as a cultural expert in food gathering and is featured on numerous TV programs, books, and storytelling events. Welcome, Steve. One of the earliest memories I have of food gathering is picking abalone and being a little kid in a stuffy little pair of boots and rain gear and a, um, a life jacket that, although they said fit me well, I protested many, many, many times and would try and dish that thing anytime possible. But anybody who has ever crawled around on slippery rocks looking for kelp or looking for abalone or other tasty creatures to eat knows that it's, it's a dangerous thing. And you can slip and fall and easily hurt yourself. And for a little kid who loved to run around and play in the water and be on the beach, well, it was about the only way that they could keep me safe. So put a little hard hat on me and a, uh, a float coat or a life jacket. My family is from Sitka and we've lived there for a very long time um, since before the Russians came. The Russians first came to Southeast Alaska in pursuit of the sea otter. And the furs were worth considerable amounts of money in Asian markets. And the Russians were very set on getting as many of them as they could. They took so many that they nearly wiped it out. When I was a little kid, we didn't see very many sea otters. They were around, but they were somewhat rare. But every springtime, my family and I would go out and we would gather abalone and we would gather sea urchins and different things off the rocks. And we would get our legal limits every time. And then as I grew older and became a teenager, I noticed that the abalone were becoming fewer and fewer and fewer. And the other thing that I noticed is that the sea otters were becoming more and more plentiful. And they began to take on a different state to a lot of people. A lot of people called them furry little devils and framed them for wiping out either their economic sources or their food supplies. It's furry little devils, they're so cute, but they sure do eat a lot of food, up to 25% of their body weight. So if you can picture like 25, 30 pounds of food a day, that's a lot. So as a teen, I decided to take some of this knowledge and exercise one of the treaty rights that we received was to hunt marine mammals. And so I would go out and shoot sea otters and tan their hides, um, mostly at home, but later I would send them off. And as I would do so, I would think about the food that I was protecting 
I would think about the commercial fisherman who was catching crabs in a place that the sea otters could easily wipe out if they had moved in there. I would think about the beaches that used to be plentiful with clams. At low tide, it looked like a giant field of super soakers, squirt guns everywhere as far as the eye could see. But after the otters had moved in, it looked like a crater of the moon and there were very few clams left. And as I got older, I started to think more and more about harvesting and its place in the environment and its place in nature. And the one thing that I really learned and observed is where we are in the food chain and our ability to protect, to control, to influence, but also our ability to learn from and to understand what is in front of us. And I started to think more of the sea otter as a source of happiness and warmth because a lot of the people I was trading skins to, they were making hats and gloves for little old ladies. And some of the new mothers were wrapping their infants in the skins. And they lived in places that were so cold that they couldn't go outside unless they had something that provided the very best heat. And the sea otter skin has the most hairs of any other marine mammal. And so hunting them started to take on a different feel to me. It wasn't a thrill or a sport or something that, that I looked at as a trophy or a status symbol, but rather another way to show warmth and another way to show people bits of affection so that they in turn can repeat it so that their lives can be better and so that their families could be happy and warm. Just like my family used to be as we were young, picking abalone off the rocks. As a teen, when the abalone started to disappear, I began to really think about the adventures and things that we had and the abalone and its place. It not only was like current, we may have lost Steve. Years. And the only thing that I can think of, the only thing that I've observed that I think could contribute is the sea star. The sea star is dying off and the abalone are starting to come back. And so I think about this and I think about our observations and how we live and the lessons that we have to learn from the environment around us. And so the only thing I know is there's a lot we don't know. And there's a lot of questions yet to be asked. And it's up to each one of us to look for answers. Thanks, Steve. That was awesome. And thanks to all our storytellers for bringing Sick of Tales Tales to life on the radio. I uh, want to thank the Sitka Soup and the Sitka Daily Sentinel for helping us get the word out to our timer, Ellie, and all of you who are tuned in on Raven Radio. Jay, let's hear a little bit more about Sitka Whale Fest. Yeah, that was awesome. I'm totally inspired by the stories I heard tonight. And uh, I want to thank the uh, science storytellers and their insights into being into the question. And please go to sitkawhalefest.org. Great. Thanks. I'm ready to sign up. 
I also want to say, if you see one of the tellers on the street or on the dock, tell them you heard the story and uh, what struck you. And before we sign off for the night, I want to mention a few things. You can hear Sitka Tells Tales on the third Tuesday of the month, either a show from the vault or a live event. And if you have an idea for a theme, have feedback, or want to tell a story, please contact us via artchangeinc.org, via email, or find Sicka Tales Tales on Facebook for updates and to message us. And please tune in on the first Tuesday of every month at 7 p.m. for our sister's show, Our Grandparents' Teachings, hosted by Chuck Miller. Again, thanks for tuning in and being involved with uh, making, sharing, and telling stories. Thank you for joining us for Sitka Tells Tales, a live storytelling event based in Sitka, Alaska. Tonight's theme was Being in the Question, Stories of Curiosity and Science. And thank you to our storytellers this evening, Stacy Golden, Taylor White, Ron Heinz, Jason Schmidt, Molly Greer, and Steve Johnson. And thank you also to our media partners, Raven Radio. Your host this evening was Ellen Frankenstein. And to find out more about Sitka Tells Tales, you can visit artchangeinc.org. This audio program was made in collaboration with Art Change Inc. and Raven Radio. Our theme music tonight was Clink Tale by Poddington Bear. And this episode of Sitka Tells Tales was made possible with funding from the Sitka Alaska Permanent Charitable Trust and by the Rasmussen Foundation, administered by the Alaska State Council on the Arts.